about to say this morning. So if you don't like it, just nod your head and smile. <laughs> and we can make an appointment and talk about it later. It's amazing how much of our culture is, is spent on about the body, making the body look good, fulfilling the desires of the body. You turn on TV these days, and most of the commercials, sometimes I play, I don't normally watch commercials, but sometimes I do, and I play a game in my mind, counting how many times the commercial is about someone's body. Cosmetics, clothes, eyeglasses, diapers of all ages, anything. A few chuckles there. Come on. You walk into a supermarket like Walmart, you walk into a pharmacy, how much of the store is trying to get you to spend money on your body? And then we die. Maybe it's because we walked into Walmart. <laughs> but we die, and then someone pays a bunch of money, nothing, you know, I'm not saying this is good or bad, that sort of thing, but someone pays a bunch of money to a guy to make your body look good after you're dead. We, pay, we spend a lot of on the body, whether it's to make us look good, to fill the desires of the body. Our culture puts a lot of value on the body. As a reaction, many churches and denominations throughout the centuries have gone in the other direction. They said the culture says the body's great, the culture says fulfill the desires of the body, so those churches swing in the other way and they preach against bodily desires, they preach devaluing the body, and they exalt the spirit. The epitome is stories that, that may or may not be true of certain Puritans who actually took the mirrors out of their houses so that their kids and themselves wouldn't spend so much time focusing on the body, instead focusing on spiritual things, because it is the spirit that's where it's at. The body is sinful and will decay. Other denominations say, you know, I don't want to fight that fight. Culture says body's good, therefore we try and encourage people to have happiness in life, and therefore do what you want to with your body. Fulfill the desires of your body however you want to. There's this pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth. And the question is, which side is right? Is it the culture that says, fulfill every desire of your body and Spend as much money on it as you want to. Exalt the body. Or is it the churches that say the body is bad, the body is sinful, let's focus on spiritual things? Which side is right? Anyone want to say? Neither. Neither. Thank you very much. Trick question. You are right. Neither side is right. Too often, instead of creating an understanding of truth from the Bible... We look at our culture and we say what our culture says is true. Or we look at churches we have gone to and we say that church is true. Where we should open the Bible and say, what does God say? Throw the culture, culture to the curb. Maybe even throw that church to the curb and come to the truth. What does it say? Let's look at what scripture says about the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. After reading this passage, if we were reading together in my office, you might look at me and say, Pastor, this passage ultimately is about sexual immorality. That's the main point of it. Why are we talking about the body? Well, it's because we need to know about the body before we can go to sexual immorality. So we're going to spend two weeks on this passage. This week, we're going to talk about the deep, crazy stuff about the body. And next week, we're going to talk about sexual immorality. Hopefully next week, when we discuss that, we're going to correct some misconceptions on what is and is not sexual immorality, kind of talk to some of these churches over here, uh, and put all this back into the spirit on what this passage was given, especially after we learn about the body. The goal is not legalistic do's and don'ts. The goal is, how did God create us? What is his design for us, and how can we worship him in that? Today, as we talk about the body, we're going to discuss our identity and the implications of our identity. That's our roadmap. Holy cow. um, Identity and the implications of our identity. Paul makes three statements about our identity. First off, he says that we are redeemed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, you are bought at a price. I look back in my records. I have quoted this verse three times the past year. I quoted it in February. I quoted it in March. I quoted it in April. And now I'm talking about it again here. It is a very important verse, very small phrase, but very important. When I talked about it in February, I was talking about redemption. And I said how redemption has three parts to it. I had a nice volunteer who shall not be named, but who's sitting right over there. He got up here, and I, he allowed me to put handcuffs on him. Do you remember that? No? I'm pretty sure it was you. It might not have been you. I'll have to look back and see. It might have been Percy. I had someone. It was Percy? Ah, oh, sorry. I can bring my handcuffs back and put them on you if you want. Okay. <laughs> So he got up, I gave handcuffs to him, and I said, redemption requires three things. So first, it requires someone who is in bondage. Put the handcuffs on him. I said, second, redemption requires someone to give a great price for those handcuffs to be taken. I asked for any volunteer to give me $500 to take the handcuffs off of Percy. No one did it. But if someone had, that still would not have been redemption. Redemption is not when someone gives a bunch of money to get someone out. Redemption requires a third thing, a transfer of allegiance. If someone gave me the $500 and I took the handcuffs off Percy, then Percy turned to that person and said, I owe you my life for the rest of my life. I will be your slave until I die. That would be redemption. We are redeemed. We are redeemed. Redemption is humanity is in chains to sin, death, and the devil. And we were this way from birth. And every day, we as humans, as we breathe, we are putting on more chains on our life because of what we do. 
These chains that we carry lead us to destruction because of what they are. And nothing we can do is going to remove those chains. Sin, death, and the devil are definitely not going to remove those chains. So we are doomed to destruction for all of eternity because of the chains that are on us. Chains we were born with, chains we put on because of our life. Redemption is Jesus paid the price that we might remove the chains of slavery to sin, death, and the devil so that we might be slaves of Christ. He died that we might be free. We in turn turn to him and say, I'm going to follow you with my life. That is redemption. Paul writes here very simply, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. He owns it. We follow him. Paul lived at a very interesting time when he was writing this. People were not judged at that time based on whether they were free or not, slave or not. They were, based, they were judged based upon who they served. There were poor people who willingly sold themselves into slavery because they realized that their status as slaves of that person would put them higher on the social level than where they were as a poor free person. We don't think about it that way. We want to be free. We want to be our own person. We want to be independent. We want to own our own business. But Romans were like, you know, I could work my way up the social ladder by becoming a slave. And so they would do that. You careful, Jacoby? You okay? Okay, good. It's not shameful to be a slave in Paul's society if you're a slave to the right person. Peter says that if we've turned to Jesus in faith, we are slaves to him. Before we were nothing as slaves to sin, death, and the devil, doomed to destruction, and now we have status because we are slaves to the creator of the universe. Paul says we are redeemed. If we have turned from our sin, placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he has saved us. It is done. We are redeemed. Now we are his. Not only have we been redeemed, Paul says, but we have been united. We have been united. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. United. Before we turn to Jesus in faith, we were his enemy. Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 5, how we were enemies of Christ, and he died for us while we were still his enemies. We were opposed to him. We were at war with him by our actions, by our mindset. But then God reached out to us, his enemies, and won us over, not with sword, but with love. The verse that so many people know from Sunday school, but so few people actually apply to their life, is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish above everlasting life. Through the death of Jesus Christ, we, his enemies, were brought close because of God's love. We're united. What does that mean? United, it speaks of our salvation. We're united with Christ in his death so that we died to sin, death, and the devil. We're united with Christ in his resurrection, so we live a new life along with him, not defined by our sin of the past anymore, but by him. It speaks of our sanctification. We're united with him in holiness, in the lives that we do, taking on a new identity that is revealed in our actions. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 talks about this new identity in our actions. He says, Galatians 3, 26 to 27. So in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. The clothing is a picture of how we show ourselves to those around us. We're united with him in our actions. We're united with him in our attitude. Philippians chapter 2. Having the same love, being one spirit and one mind, be united with Christ by how our attitude is. We could keep going, but Paul sums it up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We're united with Christ, therefore Christ lives through us. And through that connectedness, we have every good thing that we have in this life. Before Christ, we were united with sin, death, and the devil. And through that, we received despair, doom, and promised destruction. But now in Christ, we have every good thing we do. Every, every saving good is from him. Every eternal good, every God-exalting good, every soul-satisfying good, all through this uni- union, this connectedness, to Christ. What is our identity? Paul says we are redeemed. Paul says we're united with Christ. Paul says we are resurrected. Resurrected. We will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians six fourteen. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. We believe Jesus died and rose again. We celebrate that in Easter. Resurrection Sunday. Very important thing in our faith that Jesus died and rose, rose again. And every day we should be celebrating that fact because since he was raised, so we will be raised also. Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We believe, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, who are saved, that death is not the end for those who die in Christ. Every funeral service, I come up here, and somewhere in that funeral sermon, I say that sentence, that death is not the end for those who die in Christ, because that is our hope, that is the truth, and this fact should always be kept in front of us because of our identity. We are those, this is our identity, we are those who will be raised from the dead. Death is not the end for us. For us, there is no end. If we have been redeemed and united with Christ, we will live forever with him. And that is a fact, a done deal. It's not a, I hope it will happen. Uh, It might happen. It is, yes, it will happen. One day, Jesus will come for us. And in that day, he will destroy death, sin, and the devil. He will destroy our enemies, our old masters, and he will cause life to come back into our bodies and raise us up to live forever. There will be no more sin or decay in our bodies. It will be perfection. We won't be raised to live in heaven, floating around, carrying a harp with wings on our back. We'll be raised to live on this earth in our physical bodies. But how is created to be? We've read the stories. We've read the truth of Genesis 1 to 2, how God created the heavens and the earth. And he looked at everything and he said, it is very good. Very good. And that's what it will be again. What we were created for, we will finally be in. Complete enjoyment and uninterrupted fellowship with God and the rest of creation. That is what is promised to those who have been redeemed. And some days there's a big yearning. especially when my ankle hurts from trampolines. (sighs) When God promises something, we know it happens. It will happen. He promised this will happen. We know it will happen. Back in the day, he looked at Jezebel and said, Jezebel, you're going to be eaten by dogs. And it happened. That might have been too graphic an illustration. But when God promises something, it happens. It happens. 
When he promises that those who believe in Jesus Christ will have everlasting life, it means that they will. So what is our identity? If we've turned from our sin and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are the redeemed, we are the united, and we are those who will be resurrected. That's our identity. We're now halfway through the sermon. It's all great stuff. If that is our identity, hallelujah, praise God. But if that's our identity, what's the implications of this? And this is where we get to some of the deep stuff. We're going to talk about the implications of our identity. The first implication is that we are one with Christ. We are one with Christ. You say, didn't we already talk about that? Our identity is we are united with him. Yes, that's our identity. But what does that mean for us? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The implication of being united with him is that we are one with him. And you say, that's just duh. Doesn't that make sense? logical, makes sense? It's obvious. Why are you stating the obvious? Because so often, what is obvious or logical, we look at that and say, oh yeah, that's nice, and we just go over it without actually allowing it to change the way we live. If we don't dwell on it, we won't live it. So bear with me as I slow down, but not too much. Since we're united with Christ, we are one with Christ. What does it mean to be one with Christ? There are two other relationships in Scripture where it talks about someone is one. The first is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe that our God is one God, one being, one essence in three persons. Those three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have different functions, but they are work together, united in purpose, united in action on that purpose, and interdependence. They have been and always will be one. That is who our God is. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 6.4, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Now that description, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, that word for one is used another spot in Genesis chapter 2, verse 28, where it talks about marriage, husband and wife. Husband shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. God created marriage to be a oneness. He created marriage, I've talked about this before, to be a reflection of who God is. When God created Adam and Eve and said, I have created you in my image, yes, each person contains the image of God. Pro-life people, when they talk about the evils of abortion, say we are killing an image of God. And I agree with that. But how many people look over at marriages and say, when you're divorcing, you are killing an image of God? When you are arguing and not pursuing fullness and fulfillment and oneness, you are killing an image of God. But you are. Because God designed man and woman together to be an image of who God is in a way that nothing else in creation is. Man and woman, two different people, but one relationship, one entity. Different functions, same status in that entity. A unification of purpose should be. A union of action on that purpose should be. An interdependentness should be a picture of who God is. In the same way that man and woman in marriage is a reflection of God's oneness, so we in our oneness with Christ is supposed to be a reflection of God's oneness. We have the Holy Spirit in us, his essence, So we are one with him in that way. We have different functions, us and Christ, totally different functions, but we are to be united in purpose. We're to be united in action on that purpose. We are definitely dependent on him, and for some strange reason, he has chosen to be dependent on us and interdependentness. We are one with him. 
one with him. We should be living that oneness every single day. So implication one, we are united with Christ. Implication two, our bodies are important. Our bodies are important. Okay, if God is going to raise our bodies, the implication of that identity is that our bodies are important. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 14. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 14, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God will raise the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. The Corinthians had a saying, I have the right to do anything. Paul slaps that aside and says, nope, not everything's beneficial. Therefore, I don't want to do it and I don't want to be mastered by anything. So anyone has, wants to have a discussion about addictions or getting drunk or getting high, Paul says, we shouldn't allow anything to be our boss. We shouldn't want to have something controlling our actions. The Corinthians had another saying, food for the stomach and food, stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They were saying that God has given us hunger. God has given us a desire for food, and we should be able to fulfill that desire with any food we want to. And Paul would agree with that. In, later in 1 Corinthians, he says, yes, all food is clean. We can eat anything we want to. Food is going to decay. We're going to die someday. It's okay. But the Corinthians expanded the meaning of the phrase to apply to relations between a man and a woman. They say, God gave us desires for food, therefore let us eat anything. Therefore, and then they flopped over and said, God gave us desires of the flesh. Therefore, let us fulfill those desires, whatever we want to. It's the same because our bodies are going to die and decay, the Corinthians said. Our bodies don't matter. And Paul says, stop right there, Corinthians. Our body is important. Sure, God is gonna destroy food, but our by itself is going to be destructed. It is going to be resurrected. I'm going to go on a soapbox just for a couple seconds. I was listening to a sermon once where a pastor was, was talking about how he comforted someone's family during a death. And he, he had told them that picture someone's body with a zipper that starts up here. And he says when someone dies, God takes that zipper and zips it down their back, releases the spirit, leaves the body behind, the person's spirit goes up. And he told that family in and, and, and this sermon that a person when they die and their spirit is released, leaving the body behind, they are more alive then than they've ever been in their physical body. Sound great? Family was comforted. Unfortunately, it is heresy. The early church had a group of people called Gnostics. And the Gnostics, along with a bunch of other beliefs that they had, believed that everything that was physical was sinful and broken and bad. Everything that was spiritual was good. Therefore, they told their people, stop focusing on the spiritual. Stop focusing on the physical. Because the physical is bad, always spiritual. And they popularized this belief that when you die, you turn into spirits and angels and you live forever as that way. Even today, some churches will say that, will talk about your, their child dying and that child is an angel now. That comes from the Gnostics. It is a heresy that was condemned by the apostles. 
The body is important. God designed us as a whole person, body and soul, and he saved us as a whole person, body and soul, and he will resurrect us as a whole person, body and soul, and we will live forever physically on this earth again, body and soul. We cannot bash the body in favor of the soul, and we cannot declare to people that they are more alive when they are separated, body and soul, than when they will be when they are one day united, body and soul. God created both. He will save both. Our identity is that we will be resurrected. The implication of that is that our bodies are important. We are one with Christ. Our bodies important. Are you all still with me? It's going to get weirder. Implication three, if we are one with Christ and our body's important, implication three is our bodies are members of Christ. If we are one with Christ, this speaks not just one spiritually because we are a whole self. He saved us whole self. He will resurrect us whole self. We're united with him whole self. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. It might sound crazy, but it's just logic. He saved us whole. He redeemed us whole. He'll raise us whole. We're united whole. Our bodies are members of Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I live in the body, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, in my body. The next week, we're going to talk about what it means that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and we'll jump back into normal reality there. Right now, we're stuck into the invasion of the body snatchers. The image Paul uses later says that we as a church are members of Christ's body. Some of us are eyes, some of us are mouths, some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are other parts. That's who we are, and he uses it as a metaphor, and it's based upon our gifts. I am a mouth. Other people are hands and feet because they serve more. I talk more. Paul's not speaking for metaphor here. He's saying, just as husband and wife, when they're united together, a husband's body belongs to his wife, and the wife's body belongs to him, as we'll talk about later, in the same way, our bodies belong to Christ. Have you ever looked at your hands and said, these are Christ's hands? These are Christ's feet. This is Christ's nose. When Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul could have said, no, I stuck the knife into Joe, not you. But that was Christ. That was him. Christ said, when you persecute me, you persecute them, you persecute me. When you kill one of my own, you're killing me. You're affecting the bodies. Our bodies belong to Christ. So the implications were one with Christ. Our bodies are important. Our bodies are members of Christ. They belong to him. We still with me? Okay, fourth implication. We should not rip our bodies from Christ. We should not rip our bodies from Christ. At the end of verse 15, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a the prostitute? The verb that he uses there, shall I then take, could be translated, shall I then snatch and carry off or it could be translated, and normally it's more translated this way, shall I wrench away? Have you ever tried to rip a branch off a tree? Yeah? You 
you shake it a little bit, and if you're really strong, you start hearing those fibers groaning and breaking, and then all of a sudden, the branch snaps, and you fall to the ground and break your leg. It's a violent word. This is a violent word. It's speaking this, he's talking about what happens when we try to unite something with two opposing independent things. Okay, I need two volunteers. Okay, thank you, Jacoby. Thank you, John. Come right up here. All right. Jacoby, take this hand. John, take this hand. Okay, John, I want you to make sure that my hand touches that window over there. Sound good? Jacoby, have my hand touch that window over there. Now, what would happen if they kept doing this? I'd be ripped apart. Do we normally want to do that to people? No. Thank you. Sit down. The, the word that's used here is a violent word. Boy, I sprained my ankle yesterday, dislocate my shoulders today. It's hard being a pastor. It's a violent word. It's something we don't naturally do to things, what this word is. Consider an apple tree. My brother planted four apple trees this year, and he's going to graft other apple trees into those apple trees, so he has a bunch of different varieties there. He has more of a green thumb than I do. But he's going through all that work, and it would not be natural for him to take those branches that he went into all that work for and rip those branches off the tree. But when we choose to indulge in sin, which is against Christ using our bodies, any part of them that you want to talk about, fingers, toes, eyes, anything else, we are violently ripping the members of Christ off of him, Paul is saying. A guy by the name of Anthony Thistleton writes, the Christian cannot claim the privilege of being purchased as one who belongs to Christ and simultaneously take away the limbs and organs which have been grafted into Christ for unchristlike purposes that wrench them apart again. If we take our members, our limbs, and our organs and say, you know, I know these are Christ, but I'm going to do sin with them, we are doing what John and Jacoby were trying to do to me. Paul applies this to prostitutes, but applies to anything that we can think of across the board. Knowing that I am a member of Christ, why would I sin against this body which is Christ's? We know the song, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And the song goes back through the eyes, the ears, the tongue, the hands, the feet, the heart, the mind. It's a great song, but it misses the point. Yes, God is seeing everything, and we should be careful what we do because he sees us. But Paul says even more than that, my eyes are literally for Christ. So I should be careful what I see because I do not want to violently wrench these eyes out of Christ. The same with the ears, the tongue, the hands, the feet, the heart, the mind, and every single other part of the body that we have. Every single day we must remember our identity, that we are the redeemed, that we are the united, that we will be resurrected. Therefore, we should live as if, because we are, one with Christ, knowing that our body is important because they are members of Christ, therefore let us not rip those bodies from Christ. That took me a lot longer than I thought it would. But we now have a theology of the Bible, of the body. 
Next week, we're going to discuss the rest of the passage, and we're going to apply that specifically to our lives. Thank you for your patience. Brooke's going to come up and lead us to a song, and then we're going to leave the body behind and talk about money. Always great things to talk about. As he comes up, will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are God and we are not. That you've given us truth to consider and truth to apply that our lives might change. Lord, the way you design things, sometimes it blows my mind and crosses my eyes. But you are the one who gives us truth. Help us, Father, to live our lives according to your truth, to remember who we are as your people continually so that we would not use what you've given us and what you own for things that you would not like. Thanks, Father. If you'll stand with me, we'll sing one verse there, one time through, good to me. And we'll let you go for this morning. Don't forget we have financial peace. I'm sure you're going to say that, but... uh, Financial Peace right after service, so if you're interested in that program, please stick around for that.